Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, A Terrain of Trust, we are joined by Brandy Monk-Payton, Assistant Professor of Communication and Media Studies at Fordham University, who shares her thoughts about representation, collaboration, and effective instruction. We're really, really happy today to welcome Brandy Monk-Payton to the podcast. Brandy is an assistant professor of communication and media studies and specializes in representations of African-Americans on television, mostly in film as well. Yes. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is you've been such a incredibly active participant in conversations around pedagogy and anti-racist pedagogy during the pandemic. And you're also very, very new to Fort, right? And so I'm just curious kind of how you feel like this experience of being a fairly new professor at Fordham and then having that training isn't quite the right word, but that kind of getting your career started, interrupted by this move online. How are you thinking about that now that we're back, you know, in the, let's call this the long tail end of the pandemic, where we're back teaching face-to-face, but in masks? Yeah, um, well, first it's, it's good to, to be here talking to you all uh, about pedagogy. So, so thanks Stephen and Anne for inviting me. This is my fifth year at Fordham, and uh, pre- prior to coming to Fordham, I was in a I was in a postdoc where where I taught at Dartmouth, and so, you know, I've always had smaller classrooms. I've always been focused on discussion, really discussion focused um, seminars, and so I think when I came to Fordham initially. And specifically at at Rose Hill, I was, you know, really sort of put into this arena where the student body was quite different. I've come from institutions like Swarthmore, like Brown, where I got my PhD, where everyone kind of pushed the boundary (laughs) of, of sort of how one could learn how to think and and learn in the classroom. And I think I really attempted to uh, bring all of that knowledge to to Fordham, really trying to encourage students to to play um, in the classroom, which is something that it's really important to me, play in a variety of ways, right? Like play across different methods and approaches to thinking, uh, play quite literally in terms of creativity in the classroom. And, you know, it's been a real journey and I've been really fortunate to have students who um, are really uh, engaged in that way will sort of follow me, (laughs) right, to to various kinds of cliffs. Uh, Hopefully we don't, you know, fall over, but but, but definitely it's been, you know, really great experience. And so also coming to Fordham, to be quite frank, you know, the, it's an institution that I'm coming to with mostly a white population in my classrooms. And, and so the question of, of anti-racist pedagogy becomes very 
important, but also the way that I approach it is slightly different. I think having a classroom that is not as diverse as classrooms that I've had in the past. So I think I've started to think about anti-racist pedagogy, not just in terms of thinking through issues of, of power and privilege and justice, which I obviously do in my courses, but I also am looking at ways to celebrate, right, difference um, and, and celebrate identity such that students understand that issues around race are intrinsic to every field and, and the ways in which we talk about different disciplines, different kinds of content is always already informed by issues surrounding race. So that's been something that I have also come to slowly, right, um, in sort of thinking of thinking it with students and observing them and their own kinds of concerns and anxieties uh, about what their place is in the world right now. How do they see themselves as change makers? Where do they kind of intervene socially, politically? And so that's been a real kind of fascinating process to, to sort of work with students on. Can you tell us what is anti-racist pedagogy? For me, it's A, again, about those being attentive to issues around power, privilege, equity, and justice. I've sort of moved away from diversity for a variety of reasons uh, in terms of the way that that term has been co-opted. I sort of have this thing that I do where I talk about what I call a terrain of trust. So I tell students this, and I have moved away from talking about safe space to the idea of a terrain of trust. And I do that acknowledging that safe space has a historical background, right, in the 90s, LGBTQ communities. And so, but what I've found is that safety, I think, doesn't actually get to the, the root of how students are encountering each other and the instructor in the classroom in terms of, you know, instruction, but also in terms of content, I think it really has to start from trust. Uh, I love that phrase. Yeah. I just love it. Terrain of trust. Yeah. It's beautiful. The alliteration is great, but I also like the idea of terrain suggests kind of bumpiness exactly. and the potential for making a mistake. Is that, I suspect that's intentional in your phrasing. So can you talk a little bit more about what happens when someone says something that challenges the terrain of trust that you're trying to establish? Terrain of trust for me is a lot more active um, and it sort of puts onus on both student and instructor on right. thinking well, about safe, how to safe. cultivate something, right? Yes. Because safe spaces, as I remember them when they started in the 90s, were literally like closets of withdrawal. Exactly. Right? And they can be incredibly important when you have people who are traumatized. Exactly. But they're not about moving forward. They're about healing only, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, again, perhaps this is controversial, but I mean, I, I, I struggle with when a student says they're unsafe, I actually don't know how to 
recreate a particular kind of environment. Whereas I think if we change the language and shift the focus to trust, right, it, it becomes about um, a question of, okay, well, how can I regain trust? How do I actively practice a different ethics in, in, in the classroom? And so again, it, it, it sort of points to this sort of interactive sort of mode of, of cultivating an atmosphere that one feels okay and comfortable with, comfortable with discomfort, A, which I think is really important in the classroom, and then also comfortable with being able to uh, share grievances, right, objections, disagree, and, and still retain some sense of a classroom environment that is, that is equitable. Can you talk a little bit about, just practically, in your method, how, how do you build trust for your students? Like, how do you demonstrate that you're trustworthy as their instructor? At the outset, I'm just very frank and honest with them. Um, I'm, I'm transparent about way in which we are going to go about learning in a particular class, because I think that's not always a given. Um, and so being upfront about those goals and how we're going to achieve them, specifically for myself, I think teaching material like I teach a TV race and civil rights class. And we sort of go through that class historically. And we start with 1950s, Amos and Andy, 1960s civil rights movement on TV. And I have to be, I have to contextualize the material for them. I have to historicize it. And I have to make it clear that we are looking at this material as a text and we're engaging it on, on those terms of its, of its history, right? And so, again, it, it's me being very clear about why we're doing what we're doing, why we're watching what we're watching. When you're teaching a almost entirely white class, something like Amos and Andy, where the show depicts things that we would now call stereotypes, right? And would see as negative. How do you help white students who don't know a lot of black people, mm -hmm. maybe, not just reinforce their sense that Amos and Andy is like a documentary, like this is how black people are. And, yeah. and how do you do that in a way that doesn't that protects yourself as a professor who's also black standing in front of them trying to teach a history lesson about representation yeah. that might go in an uh, unfortunate direction pretty quickly. I think that's a good question and it's something that I continue to like, struggle with specifically when you're talking about mediation and, and representation. And what I want them to do actually is name the, the sort of stereotype, right? We can do stereotype analysis. And then what I actually want them to do that's harder for white students as well as students of color um, in a lot of respects is to go beyond the stereotype. And I think that is always where it's difficult for students to reconcile what they know to be a kind of negative image and the potential pleasures, right, that 
emerge on the part of audiences, regardless of whether or not, right, it's positive or negative. So that's a, that's longer work, uh, and it happens throughout the semester. Um, I think, you know, I tell students after the first two or three weeks uh, of teaching both the TV race and civil rights class, as well as um, the African-American cinema class, I tell them we're not going to use the word stereotype or negative image anymore. And if I use it, I have to kind of put like money in a jar or something, right? Like a square jar. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. To get them beyond this moment. But what what you're asking is important in terms of the kind of realism or the assumption of a kind of quality of the image and its it's sort of real world manifestation. For me, it's all about the, the the context and the history. I bring in historical newspaper clippings about these programs to sort of show how audience members, how viewers were encountering this material and, and also talking about their own discomfort watching these these programs, this this sort of media content. And it's changed over the years and every class is very different. A few years ago, I could have taught all in the family and it would have been completely like we wouldn't have the same con- conversations that we did during the Trump years, for instance, versus teaching it now. Right. So I, you know, it, it's right. Archie Bunker as a character yeah. is a really different person. Exactly. And even just Queens itself as a place has become very different since 2016. Totally. And yeah. And so I. I'm just very cognizant of, of sort of trying to, to, to read the room, but also really giving students license to embrace discomfort. I think discomfort, not discomfort in a provocative sense, right, which I think happens, but I think discomfort can be really generative yes. um, and to sort of question our own assumptions trying to bring students to a point where they can self-reflect and self-assess their their discomfort, which is to say also, you know, in a lot of ways to self-reflect on their whiteness that kind of, you know, emerges. One assignment that I give students for the TV race and civil rights class is to, I tell them to interview someone close to them, a family member, relative, or someone older who's watched the the miniseries Roots from the 1970s. And it's a really productive assignment. Students really enjoy, I think we don't necessarily, when we talk about bringing, you know, students whole selves to the classroom, this is an assignment that actually gets them to talk to their family, which in the context of, you know, the classroom and sort of the educational experience, they don't necessarily do all all, all that much. And so, you know, students always come to me and tell them and tell me that they were so fascinated by just hearing the history of their family, right? And and also sometimes shocked, right, by, you know, their family members who are from the South, perhaps, and watched Roots when it first came out in 1977, and had particular kinds of feelings about it. That's another kind of way to reflect on one's identity, the way in which we can sort of think about a text, right, and, and an experience together um, that I've found really generative. And I, and, and I do see as a part of a kind of anti-racist pedagogy, right? That kind of self-interrogation of, of one's positionality. You said something at the very beginning of our conversation that I want to hear a little bit more about because it's so 
I can hear it so clearly in your voice, the joy you take in the work that you do and how much you love it. And you talked about how one of the ways your teaching has transformed in recent years is talking about allowing for moments of celebration. And can you talk a little bit about how you make space for that in the classroom and what that looks like for you and your students? I think about it also in terms of my research as well. And I'm very much someone who, you know, my research informs my teaching, my teaching informs my research in that way. And so, you know, I think over the past couple of years, and again, this is something that has shifted in my, in, in my teaching and, and something that I want to explore more is that, you know, students are, are pushing for diversity and inclusion they're not just pushing for more discussion of trauma and more discussion of racism, bigotry, right? Anti-Blackness. Um, they're also pushing for, it may not be articulated in the same ways, but I think, but, but they're also really pushing for how to talk about joy, right? How to talk about different kinds of ways in which, from my vantage point, Black life worlds and experiences emerge. And it's something that they, you know, maybe haven't gotten in the same way previously. And so for me, it's about showing them images, media content that is not always tied to questions of, say, police brutality, right? Any other kinds of violence and really moving towards these other areas of experimentation and innovation that folks of color have have sort of been practicing in in, in cultural production and, and media representation. And that provides a different contour. This move away from thinking about the the black body, right, and like a body as, as something, you know, completely abstracted um, to black people. I'm so interested that you say that because I love following you on Twitter and I oh, saw yeah. someone tweet out the other day, we're going to be really ashamed of ourselves for talking about the black body when we haven't been talking about black people. That phrase, the black body has served a kind of theoretical use, totally. but it's also been potentially quite dehumanizing. Exactly. Yeah. And potentially sort of stifling and, and I, it's totally alluring. And I remember like, I'm, partly of that, that shift, it was a moment. And, and I think that we're now at this point where, okay, how do we move beyond this kind of containment of, of Blackness to this, as you said, dehumanizing form and think more about humanity, but also sort of celebrating Blackness uh, and Black people. What happens when popular culture intersects with academic discourse and gets kind of dumbed down, right? Exactly. If I'm working on a writer and no one's ever heard of her and I talk about her using only $5 words from my PhD, exactly. people aren't surprised. But if you're talking about the first Black Bachelorette and you're talking about her using super scholarly language, Everyone feels like they they are, have a right to an opinion about the first Black Bachelorette, but you and they do, but you're tr having a conversation in a different discourse for a different audience sometimes, and sometimes you're just talking to your friends about it, and sometimes you're in that middle space that's an undergraduate classroom. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So sometimes I, you're right. Sometimes I'm in the classroom talking about the first Black Bachelorette. Sometimes I am a public intellectual 
right, speaking to NPR about the Black Bachelorette. Um, sometimes I'm a scholar who writes and and sort of, you know, analyzes it in depth this, this kind of turn and, and this moment. And I think something that I've been very attuned to and concerned with is the absence of critique, not criticism, but the absence of critique. What I think actually students really need to learn from us, right? It is, it goes beyond the hot take. I also sometimes do an assignment, uh, particularly with their, uh, with, with sort of final papers, where I tell students to write an abstract, right, for their paper, and then write a hot take about it, right? Like write a tweet about it. It's shorter, A, but it gets them to think about what actually the difference is between these different forms of, of writing um, and allows them to understand the processes that go into thinking about a longer critical analytical paper as opposed to um, or in conjunction with a shorter engagement uh, that is meant for a different kind of audience. It's useful sometimes because, again, it gets them to sort of think about the way in which they sort of circulate information in this kind of social networking era uh, versus how they circulate information and, you know, create knowledge in, in a, an academic environment. Learning how to critique is really important in this moment specifically um, over the past three, four years, the kind of anti-intellectual sort of move that's happened throughout our social political landscape and how we get them to do that work. Because I think this also points back to what we were discussing earlier about how we even look at images and have a knee-jerk reaction about something. I'm very much an advocate of the, of the pause, right? The critical pause uh, <laughs> where, where we sit with something, perhaps we do a close reading of something, and then we can sort of develop our, our arguments or, or our claims. Um, but I think that, that that pause, that learning how to critique works in both the classroom environment, but, but also, you know, increasingly our students who are invested in certain kinds of activism and see themselves as activists, as a, as a kind of identity, it helps in that realm as well. And when students want to bring their activism to their academic life, um, which is increasingly the case, I've found. We want our students to be activated and engaged, but we also don't want an uncritical labeling of things before the thing has been fully investigated. I mean, I think I remember being totally blown away by an essay by Skip Gates from the early 90s, I think, about how much he and his family loved watching Amos and Andy when he was little. Yeah. And I had been taught to just don't even watch it. It's so full of negative stereotypes. You're a white person who wants to do anti-racist work, anti-racist work, avoid it. It's bad. It's like poison. Right. And then to read his delight in the show and how he gathered around and watched it and all the good they found in it. Yeah. Reminded me of the importance of something that, you know, I keep having to remind myself of, which is of developing a complex reading. Yeah, exactly. Something can be two things at once, right? You can be excited that there's a black bachelorette and you can see that the treatment of her by the show 
is problematic that she herself may not be the ideal. I mean, who is an ideal person, right? And exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, teaching students that there are negotiated readings to texts, right? And that people encode and decode differently, right? Like based on their subject position and derive pleasure in, in different ways, right? We can have a conversation about that. I think that's a more generative conversation. I want to ask you a question about um, screens. You spend your whole life studying texts, you know, reading, analyzing texts that are screens, that are television screens, that are movie screens. And we've spent the last 18 months on a screen. How has the uh, Zoom life changed, if at all, your relationship to, the, to screens and thinking about yourself and screens and also maybe your students and their relationship to screens? I mean, I guess like everyone, I've become more exhausted by screens. I've become more attentive to aesthetics in a way that I probably was not um, in terms of just sort of the what's in the space of the screen. I think teaching film and television is difficult through Zoom, in part because so much of what I do is about a shared communal viewing experience. Yes. Um, and so technically showing videos, streaming things through through Zoom is not is not ideal. But I think I've just become more aware of my own self-presentation. I've become more, you know, attuned to and also sort of resistant of a kind of at this point, a sort of on-demand kind of quality of sort of Zoom Zoom instruction uh, in, in some respects, because I sort of see it as me as like a news broadcaster or something, like I'm like an anchor <laughs> and I'm a talking head and, and, and this is weird. So uh, yeah, I mean, I look at it in those respects. When you teach in your class, do you demand a kind of, hushed tone library-like viewing experience or are people allowed to expostulate? They are allowed to, yes, expostulate, <laughs> laugh, cringe with their laptops down, right, close, um, because I do think one screen at a time. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it does change the experience. Um, with that said, I mean, certainly this past year and a half or so has made a lot of material more accessible, which has been great in terms of students, uh, as well as myself, right, having access to a variety of um, content that perhaps wouldn't have otherwise been streaming, right, uh, would, you know, or in a kind of virtual kind of programming event, especially for experimental avant-garde works that you might not have had access to before, right? Because they were all the way in Los Angeles. But now, right, there was a, you know, Zoom event and you were able to view certain material. So I do think that it's been helpful in, in, in that regard. I want to come back to this, um, your idea of the terrain of trust. So let's imagine that, I, you know, I find this idea compelling how, how would I begin to implement such an idea in my own practice? Like, what are some things I should think about? 
you should, as an instructor, self-reflect on your own identity, the way in which you come to the classroom, something that Bell Hooks talks about, and I know you talked about Bell Hooks, being able to uh, communicate that to students at the outset, I think is important. I think it's also important to uh, know your boundaries um, as a as an instructor, right? Your personal boundaries in terms of how you want to encounter the classroom with students, and that can differ based on the class, etc. So be mindful of that, and again, sort of having conversations with students at the outset about what is your vision for the class, right? What do you hope to uh, to gain? And that could be guidelines for a classroom environment that a lot of um, instructors make use of. But I think starting there and again, sort of discussing the fact that we are all in this together, which is <laughs> seems very sentimental, but but I do believe now more than ever that we need to have those moments where we acknowledge our kind of shared our shared experiences of, of the pandemic, right? Of the Black Lives Matter movement and figure out how to move forward from there. Um, because I think students are, yeah, are are very much concerned with the state of the world, <laughs> the climate, right? Um, quite literally. And we need to figure out a way to do this work in solidarity with each other. What does it mean to be in solidarity in a classroom? Well, and I think that's really nice because it isn't just sentimental to say that we're all in this together because it's very different. If someone says something offensive or hurtful or that that gets misunderstood in a classroom and you've established this is a space where everyone is trying to learn you automatically have the ability to interrogate the remark because you the purpose of the room is to learn and part of learning is listening right and part of learning is being willing to revise something that you said that might have landed differently than your intention. In most other spaces where we're talking with each other, that's not necessarily the shared understanding. And so kind of saying that, even though it can, we can feel, I think, as teachers self-conscious about it because it sounds something less than fully intellectual. Exactly. It's actually kind of important. I do want some recommendations from you for television shows, either something old that we that's worth going back to or something that's on right now that maybe we haven't heard of or that maybe isn't getting the attention you think it deserves? So uh, I am really a fan of the TV series Random Acts of Blindness. And it's on HBO. There's only one season right now. It's, I think, six episodes. It's by a filmmaker, Terrence Nance, who uh, is an experimental filmmaker. It's a show that is kind of a sketch program. There are different 
you know, vignettes, scenes, and the tagline for the show is shift consciousness. What I think the show is doing, it's really trying to change our our perception of TV or what TV could look like. It's again, very sort of avant-garde and strange, but it speaks to this move, I think, to Afrofuturism, to speculative storytelling that I think is really important for students to, to watch, for anyone to watch, to think about and imagine other worlds. And, and that's sort of one way to do it. So I would, I would definitely check that out, um, as well as Watchmen. Um, you know, both on, on HBO. If people don't know what Afrofuturism is, can you, can you kind of explain that term? So uh, Afrofuturism is aesthetic. It's a kind of politics, I suppose, that is really invested in thinking about Black folks in the future, invested in thinking about and playing with storytelling, sci-fi, fantasy genres and imagining a different world, right? An alternative way to live. And so I'm, I'm very drawn to those, those narratives. It's been so much fun talking to you. And we always like to ask people about a favorite teacher from their past. So this could be anyone who's mattered to you. It could be your dissertation mentor. It could be your third grade PE teacher, anything in between, anything prior to that. So it's really um, fun to hear wonderful and inspiring teachers talk about the teachers who've inspired them. So this is your chance to give a shout out to a teacher from the past. So I will say my undergrad professor, Dr. Anthony Foy from Swarthmore, and my senior year, I think it was his first year at Swarthmore, he taught Black culture in a post-soul era. And it really, in fact, I think I've told him this <laughs> after I graduated um, from, from my PhD. I think I told him that this, that course changed my trajectory and the, the things that I wanted to study in terms of thinking about Blackness uh, in all of its fullness in terms of expression, cultural expression, in terms of media production, in terms of thinking about playing with identity. And that I, I read the Colored Museum in his class and, you know, changed my, changed my life in terms of how we could think about Blackness and sort of postmodernism and just the different selves that Black folks fashion themselves uh, was really important to me. So yeah, that's what I'll say. That's what I'll say. Brandy, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. You're such an inspiring teacher and such a bright light. I'm so happy that you're my colleague here at Fordham. Truly, truly, truly. And thank you for giving uh, us an hour of your time. It was so great to talk to you all. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.